Chapter Ten of New Treasure Seekers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. New Treasure Seekers by Edith Nesbit. Chapter Ten: The Smuggler's Revenge. The days went on, and Miss Sandal did not return. We went on being very sorry about Miss Sandal being so poor. And it was not our fault that when we tried to let the house in lodgings, the first lodger proved to be a lunatic of the deepest dye. Miss Sandal must have been a fairly decent sort, because she seems not to have written to father about it. At any rate, he didn't give it to us in any of our letters about our good intentions and their ending in a maniac. Oswald does not like giving up a thing just because it has once been muffed. The muffage of a plan is a thing that often happens at first to heroes. Like Bruce and the Spider and other great characters, besides, grown-ups always say, "If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again." And if this is the rule for Euclid and the rule of three and all the things you would rather not do, think how much more it must be the rule when what you are after is your own idea, and not just the rotten notion of that beast Euclid or the unknown but equally unnecessary author who composed the multiplication table. So we often talked about what we could do to make Miss Sandal rich. It gave us something to jaw about when we happened to want to sit down for a bit in between all the glorious wet sandy games that happened by the sea. Of course, if we wanted real improving conversation, we used to go up to the boat house and talk to the coast guards. I do think coast guards are a one. They are just the same as sailors, having been so in their youth, and you can get at them to talk to, which is not the case with sailors who are at sea. Or even in harbors on ships, even if you had the luck to get on to a man of war, you would very likely not be able to climb to the top gallants to talk to the man there. Though in books the young hero always seems to be able to climb to the masthead at the moment he is told to. The coast guards told us tales of southern ports and of shipwrecks and officers they had not cottoned to, and messmates that they had. But when we asked them about smuggling, they said there wasn't any to speak of nowadays. I expect they think they oughtn't to talk about such dark crimes before innocent kids like us," said Dicky afterwards, and he grinned as he said it. "Yes," said Alice. "They don't know how much we know about smugglers and bandits and highwaymen and burglars and coiners." And she sighed, and we all felt sad to think that we had not now any chance to play at being those things. "We might play smugglers," said Oswald, but he did not speak hopefully. The worst of growing up is that you seem to want more and more to have a bit of the real thing in your games. Oswald could not now be content to play at bandits and just capture Albert next door, as once in happier days he was pleased and proud to do. It was not a coast guard that told us about the smugglers. It was a very old man that we met two or three miles along the beach. He was leaning against a boat that was wrong way up on the shingle and smoking the strongest tobacco Oswald's young nose has ever met. I think it must have been Black Jack. We said, "How do you do?" And Alice said, "Do you mind if we sit down near you?" "Not me," replied the aged seafarer. We could see directly that he was this by his jersey and his sea boots. The girls sat down on the beach, but we boys leaned against the boat like the seafaring one. We hoped he would join in conversation, but at first he seemed too proud. And there was something dignified about him, bearded and like a Viking, that made it hard for us to begin. At last he took his pipe out of his mouth and said, "Here's a precious Quakers' meeting. 
"'You didn't set down here for just to look at me.' "'I'm sure you look very nice,' Dora said. "'Same to you, miss, I'm sure,' was the polite reply. "'We want to talk to you awfully,' said Alice, "'if you don't mind.' "'Talk away,' said he. And then, as so often happens, no one could think of anything to say. Suddenly Noel said, "'I think you look nice, too, but I think you look as though you had a secret history. Have you?' "'Not me,' replied the Viking-looking stranger. "'I ain't got no history, nor geography, neither. They didn't give us that much schooling when I was a lad.' "'Oh,' replied Noel, "'but what I really meant was, were you ever a pirate or anything?' "'Never in all my born,' replied the stranger, now thoroughly roused. "'I'd scorn the haction. I was in the navy, I was, till I lost the sight of my eye, looking too close at gunpowder. Pirates is snakes, and they ought to be killed as such.' We felt rather sorry, for though, of course, it is very wrong to be a pirate, it is very interesting, too. Things are often like this. That is one of the reasons why it is so hard to be truly good. Dora was the only one who was pleased. She said, Yes, pirates are very wrong, and so are highwaymen and smugglers. I don't know about highwaymen, the old man replied. They went out afore my time, worse luck, but my father's great-uncle by the mother's side, he see one hanged once. A fine upstanding fellow he was, and made a speech while they was a fitting of the rope. All the women were snivelling and sniffing and throwing bouquets at him. Not likely, said the old man. Women can't never shy straight. But I shouldn't wonder but what them posies heartened the chap up a bit. Afterwards they was all a-fightin' to get a bit of the rope he was hung with, for luck. Do tell us some more about him, said all of us but Dora. I don't know no more about him. He was just hung, that's all. They was precious fond of hanging in them far-away times. "'Did you ever know a smuggler?' asked H.O. "'To speak to, I mean.' "'Ah, that's telling,' said the old man, and he winked at us all. So then we instantly knew that the Coast Guards had been mistaken when they said there were no more smugglers now, and that this brave old man would not betray his comrades, even to friendly strangers like us. But, of course, he could not know exactly how friendly we were. So we told him— Oswald said, "'We love smugglers. We wouldn't even tell a word about it if you would only tell us.' "'There used to be lots of smuggling on these here coasts when my father was a boy,' he said. "'My own father's cousin, his father, took to the smuggling, and he was a-doin' so well at it that what does he do but goes and gets married, and the preventatives they goes and nabs him on his wedding day, and walks him straight off from the church door, and claps him in Dover jail.' "'Oh, his poor wife!' said she. Whatever did she do? She didn't do nothing, said the old man. It's a woman's place not to do nothing till she's told to. He'd done so well at the smuggling he'd saved enough by his honest toil to take a little public. So she sets there a-waitin' and attending to customers, for well she knowed him, as he wasn't the chap to let a bit of jail stand in the way of his station in life. Well, it was three weeks to a day after the wedding. There comes a dusty chap to the peel of Bell's door. That was the sign over the public, you understand. We said we did, and breathlessly added, Go on. A dusty chap he was, got a beard and a patch over one eye, and he come of an afternoon, when there was no one about the place but her. Hello, missus, says he. Got a room for a quiet chap? I don't take in no men folks, says she. Can't be bothered with em. You'll be bothered with me if I'm not mistaken, says he. Bothered if I will, says she. "'Bothered if you won't,' says he, and with that he ups with his hand and off comes the black patch, and he pulls off the beard and gives her a kiss and a smack on the shoulder. 
She always said she nearly died, when she see it was her new-made bridegroom under the beard. So she took her own man in as a lodger, and he went to work up at Upton's farm with his beard on, and of nights he kept up the smuggling business. And for a year or more no one knowed as it was him. But they got him at last. What became of him, we all asked it. He's dead, said the old man. But Lord love you, so's everybody has lived in them far-off old ancient days, all dead, preventatives too, and smugglers and gentry, all gone under the daisies. We felt quite sad. Oswald hastily asked if there wasn't any smuggling now. Not hereabouts, the old man answered, rather quickly for him. Don't you go for to think about it. But I did know a young chap, quite young he is, with blue eyes, up Sunderland way it was. He'd got a goodish bit o' backy and stuff done in an old shirt. And as he was a-goin' up off the beach, a coast-guard jumps out at him, and he says to himself, "'All you pee this time,' says he. But out loud he says, "'Hello, Jack, that you? I thought you was a tramp,' says he. "'What you got in that bundle?' says the coast-guard. "'My washing,' says he, and a couple of pairs of old boots. Then the coast-guard, he says, "'Shall I give you a lift with it?' thinking in himself the other chap wouldn't part with it if it was anything it oughtn't to be. But that young chap was too sharp. He says to himself, If I don't, he'll nail me, and if I do, well, there's just a chance. So he hands over the bundle, and the coast guard, he thinks it must be all right, and he carries it all the way up to his mother's for him, feeling sorry for the mean suspicions he'd had about the poor old chap. But that didn't happen near here. No, no. I think Dora was going to say, old chap, but I thought he was young, with blue eyes. But just at that minute a coast-guard came along, and ordered us, quite harshly, not to lean on the boat. He was quite disagreeable about it. How different from our own coast-guards! He was from a different station to theirs. The old man got off very slowly, and all the time he was arranging his long legs so as to stand on him, the coast-guard went on being disagreeable as hard as he could in a loud voice. When our old man had told the coast-guard that no one ever lost anything by keeping a civil tongue in his head, we all went away feeling very angry. Alice took the old man's hand as we went back to the village, and asked him why the coast-guard was so horrid. "'They gets notions into their heads,' replied the old man, "'the most innocentest people they comes to think things about. It's along of there being no smuggling in these ere parts now. The coast-guards ain't got nothing to do except think things about honest people.' We parted from the old man very warmly, all shaking hands. He lives at a cottage, not quite in the village, and keeps pigs. We did not say good-bye till we had seen all the pigs. I dare say we should not have gone on disliking that disagreeable coast-guard so much if he had not come along one day when we were talking to our own coast-guards, and asked why they allowed a pack of young shavers in the boat-house. We went away in silent dignity, but we did not forget, and when we were in bed that night Oswald said— don't you think it would be a good thing if the Coast Guards had something to do? Dicky yawned and said he didn't know. I should like to be a smuggler, said Oswald. Oh, yes, go to sleep if you like, but I've got an idea, and if you'd rather be out of it, I'll have Alice instead. Fire away, said Dicky, now full of attention and leaning on his elbows. Well, then, said Oswald, I think we might be smugglers. We've played all those things so jolly often, said Dicky. But I don't mean play, said Oswald. I mean the real thing. Of course we shall have to begin in quite a small way. But we should get on in time, and we might make quite a lot for poor Miss Sandal. Things that you smuggle are expensive, said Dicky. 
"'Well, we've got the chink the Indian uncle sent us on Saturday. I'm certain we could do it. We've got someone to take us out at night in one of the fishing boats. Just tear across to France and buy a keg or a bale or something, and rush back.' "'Yes, and get nabbed and put in prison. Not me,' said Dicky. "'Besides, who'd take us?' "'That old Viking man would,' said Oswald. "'But, of course, if you funk it—' "'I don't funk anything,' said Dicky. "'Bar making an ape out of myself. "'Keep your hair on, Oswald. "'Look here. "'Suppose we get a keg with nothing in it, or just water. "'We should have all the fun, "'and if we were collared we should have the laugh of that coast-guard brute.' "'Oswald agreed, but he made it a condition "'that we should call it the keg of brandy, "'whatever was in it, and Dicky consented.' Smuggling is a manly sport, and girls are not fitted for it by nature. At least, Dora is not, and if we had told Alice she would have insisted on dressing as a boy and going too, and we knew Father would not like this. And we thought Noel and H.O. were too young to be smugglers with any hope of success. So Dicky and I kept the idea to ourselves. We went to see the Viking man the next day. It took us some time to make him understand what we wanted, but when he did understand he slapped his leg many times, and very hard, and declared that we were chips off the old block. "'But I can't go for to let you,' he said. "'If you was nailed, it's the stone jug, bless your hearts.' So then we explained about the keg really having only water in it, and he slapped his leg harder than ever, so that it would really have been painful to any one but the hardened leg of an old sea-dog. But the water made his refusals weaker, and at last he said, "'Well, see here, Benedin, him as owns the Mary Sarah, he's often took out a youngster or two for the night's fishing, when their pa's and ma's had no objection. You write your pa, and ask if you mayn't go for the night's fishing, or you get Mr. Charteris to write. He knows it's all right, and is often done by visitors' kids, if boys. And if your pa says yes, I'll make it all right with Benedin. But mind, it's just a night's fishing. No need to name no kegs. That's just betwixt ourselves.' So we did exactly as he said. Mr. Charteris is the clergyman. He was quite nice about it, and wrote for us, and Father said, Yes, but be very careful, and don't take the girls or the little ones. We showed the girls the letter, and that removed the trifling ill-feeling that had grown up through Dick and me having so much secret talk about kegs, and not telling the others what was up. Of course, we never breathed a word about kegs in public, and only to each other in bated breaths. What father said about not taking the girls or the little ones, of course, settled any wild ideas Alice might have had of going as a cabin girl. The old Viking man, now completely interested in our scheme, laid all the plans in the deepest laid way you can think. He chose a very dark night. Fortunately, there was one just coming on. He chose the right time of the tide for starting, and just in the grayness of the evening, when sun has gone down, and the sea somehow looks wetter than at any other time, we put on our thick undershirts, and then our thickest suits and football jerseys over everything, because we had been told it would be very cold. Then we said good-bye to our sisters and the little ones, and it was exactly like a picture of the Tar's farewell, because we had bundles, with things to eat tied up in blue-checked handkerchiefs, and we said good-bye to them at the gate, and they would kiss us. Dora said, "'Good-bye. I know you'll be drowned. I hope you'll enjoy yourselves, I'm sure.' Alice said, I do think it's perfectly beastly. You might just as well have asked for me to go with you, or you might have let us come and see you start. Men must work, and women must weep, replied Oswald, with grim sadness, and the Viking said he wouldn't have us at all unless we could get on board in a concealed manner, like stowaways. He said a lot of others would want to go, too, if they saw us. 
We made our way to the beach, and we tried to conceal ourselves as much as possible, but several people did see us. When we got to the boat we found she was manned by our Viking and Benenden, and a boy with red hair, and they were running her down to the beach on rollers. Of course, Dickie and I lent a hand, shoving at the stern of the boat, when the men said, Yo-ho! Heave-ho! My merry boys all! It wasn't exactly that that they said, but it meant the same thing, and we heaved like anything. It was a proud moment when her nose touched the water, and prouder still when only a small part of her stern remained on the beach, and Mr. Benenden remarked, "'All aboard!' The red boy gave a leg up to Dickie and me, and clambered up himself. Then the two men gave the last shoves to the boat, already cradled almost entirely in the bosom of the deep, and as the very end of the keel grated off the pebbles into the water, they leaped for the gunwale and hung on it, with their high sea-boots waving in the evening air. By the time they had brought their legs on board and coiled a rope or two, we chanced to look back, and already the beach seemed quite a long way off. We were really afloat. Our smuggling expedition was no longer a dream, but a real realness. Oswald felt almost too excited at first to be able to enjoy himself. I hope you will understand this and not think the author is trying to express, by roundabout means, that the sea did not agree with Oswald. This is not the case. He was perfectly well the whole time. It was Dicky who was not. But he said it was the smell of the cabin and not the sea, and I am sure he thought what he said was true. In fact, that cabin was a bit stiff altogether, and was almost the means of upsetting even Oswald. It was about six feet square, with bunks and an oil stove, and heaps of old coats and tarpaulin and sou'westers and things, and it smelt of tar and fish and paraffin smoke, and machinery oil, and rooms where no one ever opens the window. Oswald just put his nose in, and that was all. He had to go down later, when some fish was cooked and eaten, but by that time he had got what they call your sea-legs, but Oswald felt more as if he had got a sea-waistcoat, rather as if he had got rid of a land waistcoat that was too heavy and too tight. I will not weary the reader by telling about how the nets are paid out and dragged in, or about the tumbling, shining heaps of fish that come up all alive over the side of the boat, and it tips with their weight till you think it is going over. It was a very good catch that night, and Oswald is glad he saw it, for it was very glorious. Dicky was asleep in the cabin at the time and missed it. It was deemed best not to rouse him to fresh sufferings. It was getting latish, and Oswald, though thrilled in every marrow, was getting rather sleepy, when old Benedin said, There she is. Oswald could see nothing at first, but presently he saw a dark form on the smooth sea. It turned out to be another boat. She crept quietly up till she was alongside ours, and then a keg was hastily hoisted from her to us. A few words in low voices were exchanged. Oswald only heard, Sure you ain't gave us the wrong un? and several people laughed hoarsely. On first going on board, Oswald and Dicky had mentioned kegs, and had been ordered to stow that, so that Oswald had begun to fear that after all it was only a night's fishing, and that his glorious idea had been abandoned. But now he saw the keg, his trembling heart was reassured. It got colder and colder. Dicky, in the cabin, was covered with several coats richly scented with fish, and Oswald was glad to accept an oilskin and sou'wester, and to sit down on some spare nets. Until you are out on the sea at night, you can never have any idea how big the world really is. The sky looks higher up, and the stars look farther off, and even if you know it is only the English Channel, 
yet it is just as good for feeling small on as the most trackless Atlantic or Pacific. Even the fish help to show the largeness of the world, because you think of the deep deepness of the dark sea they came out of in such rich profusion. The hold was full of fish after the second haul. Oswald sat leaning against the precious keg, and perhaps the bigness and quietness of everything had really rendered him unconscious. But he did not know he was asleep until the Viking man woke him up by kindly shaking him and saying, "'Here, look alive. Was ye thinkin' to beach her with that there precious keg of yours all above board, and crying out to be broached?' So then Oswald roused himself, and the keg was rolled on to the fish, where they lay filling the hold, and armfuls of fish thrown over it. "'Is it really only water?' asked Oswald. "'There's an awfully odd smell.' And, indeed, in spite of the many different smells that are natural to a fishing boat, Oswald began to notice a strong scent of railway refreshment rooms. "'Of course it's only water,' said the Viking. "'What else would it be likely to be?' And Oswald thinks he winked in the dark. Perhaps Oswald fell asleep again after this. It was either that or deep thought. Anyway, he was aroused from it by a bump, and a soft grating sound, and he thought at first the boat was being wrecked on a coral reef or something. But almost directly he knew that the boat had merely come ashore in the proper manner, so he jumped up. You cannot push a boat out of the water like you push it in. It has to be hauled up by a capstan. If you don't know what that is, the author is unable to explain, but there is a picture of one. When the boat was hauled up we got out, and it was very odd to stretch your legs on land again. It felt shakier than being on sea. The red-haired boy went off to get a cart to take the shining fish to market, and Oswald decided to face the mixed-up smells of that cabin and wake Dicky. Dicky was not grateful to Oswald for his thoughtful kindness in letting him sleep through the perils of the deep, and his own uncomfortableness. He said, I do think you might have waked a chap. I've simply been out of everything. Oswald did not answer. His is a proud and self-restraining nature. He just said, Well, hurry up now, and see them cart the fish away. So we hurried up, and as Oswald came out of the cabin he heard strange voices, and his heart leaped up like the persons who behold a rainbow in the sky, for one of the voices was the voice of that inferior and unsailor-like coast-guard from Long Beach, who had gone out of his way to be disagreeable to Oswald and his brothers and sisters on at least two occasions. And now Oswald felt almost sure that his disagreeableness, though not exactly curses, were coming home to roost just as though they had been. "'You're missing your beauty sleep, Stokes,' we heard our Viking remark. "'I'm not missing anything else, though,' replied the Coast Guard. "'Like half a dozen mackerel for your breakfast?' inquired Mr. Benenden, in kindly accents. "'I've no stomach for fish, thank you all the same,' replied Mr. Stokes, coldly. He walked up and down on the beach, clapping his arms to keep himself warm. "'Going to see us unloader?' asked Mr. Benenden. "'If it's all the same to you,' answered the disagreeable Coast Guard." He had to wait a long time, for the cart did not come, and did not come, and kept on not coming for ages and ages. When it did, the men unloaded the boat, carrying the fish by basketfuls to the cart. Everyone played up jolly well. They took the fish from the side of the hold where the keg wasn't till there was quite a deep hole there, and the other side, where the keg really was, looked like a mountain in comparison. This could be plainly seen by the detested Coast Guard, and by three of his companions who had now joined him. It was beginning to be light, not daylight, but a sort of ghost light that you could hardly believe was the beginning of sunshine, and the sky being blue again instead of black. 
The hated Coast Guard got impatient. He said, You'd best own up. It'll be the better for you. It's bound to come out along of the fish. I know it's there. We've had private information up at the station. The game's up this time, so don't you make no mistake. Mr. Benenden and the Viking and the boy looked at each other. And what might your precious private information have been about? asked Mr. Benenden. Brandy, replied the Coast Guard Stokes, and he went and got on to the gunwale. And what's more, I can smell it from here. Oswald and Dicky drew near, and the refreshment smell was stronger than ever, and a brown corner of the keg was peeping out. There you are, cried the loathed one. Let's have that gentleman out, if you please, and then you'll all just come alonger me. Remarking, with a shrug of the shoulders, that he supposed it was all up, our Viking scattered the fish that hid the barrel, and hoisted it out from its scaly bed. That's about the size of it, said the Coast Guard, we did not like. Where's the rest? That's all, said Mr. Benenden. We're poor men, and we has to act according to our means. We'll see the boat clear to her last timber, if you've no objections, said the detestable one. I could see that our gallant crew were prepared to go through with the business. More and more of the Coast Guards were collecting, and I understood what the crew wanted was to go up to the Coast Guard station with that keg of pretending brandy, and involve the whole of the Coast Guards of Long Beach in one complete and perfect cell. But Dicky was sick of the entire business. He really has not the proper soul for adventures, and what soul he has had been damped by what he had gone through. So he said, Look here, there's nothing in that keg but water. Oswald could have kicked him, though he is his brother. Huh? replied the unloved one. Do you think I haven't got a nose? Why, it's oozing out of the bunghole now as strong as Samson. Open it and see, said Dicky, disregarding Oswald's whispered instructions to him to shut up. It is water. What do you suppose? I suppose you want to get water from the other side for, you young duffer, replied the brutal official. There's plenty of water and to spare this side. It's, it's French water, replied Dicky, madly. It's ours, my brothers and mine. We asked these sailors to get it for us. Sailors, indeed, said the hateful Coast Guard. You come along with me. And our Viking said he was something or othered, but Benenden whispered to him in a low voice that it was all right, time was up. No one heard this but me and the Viking. I want to go home, said Dicky. I don't want to come along with you. What did you want water for? was asked. To try it? To stand you a drink next time you ordered us off your beastly boat, said Dicky, and Oswald rejoiced to hear the roar of laughter that responded to this fortunate piece of cheek. I suppose Dicky's face was so angel-like, innocent-looking, like stowaways in books, that they had to believe him. Oswald told him so afterwards, and Dicky hit out. Anyway, the keg was broached, and sure enough it was water, and sea-water at that, as the unamiable one said when he had tasted it out of a tin cup, for nothing else would convince him. But I smell brandy still, he said, wiping his mouth after the sea-water. Our Viking slowly drew a good-sized, flat-labeled bottle out of the front of his jersey. From the old ship, he said gently, I may have spilt a drop or two here or there over the keg, my hand not being very steady, as is well known, owing to spells of marsh fever as comes over me every six weeks to the day. The Coast Guard that we never could bear said, Marsh fever be something or othered, and his comrades said the same, but they all blamed him and we were glad. We went home sleepy but rejoicing. The whole thing was as complete a cell as I ever wished to see. Of course, we told our own dear and respected Limchurch Coast Guards, and I think they may be trusted not to let it down on the Long Beach Coast Guards for many a good day. 
If their memories get bad, I think there will always be plenty of people along that coast to remind them. So that's all right. When we had told the girls all, and borne their reproaches for not telling them before, we decided to give the Viking five bob for the game way he had played up. So we did. He would not take it at first, but when we said, Do, you might buy a pig with it, and call it Stokes, after that coast guard, he can no longer resist, and accepted our friendly gift. We talked with him for a bit, and when we were going we thanked him for being so jolly, and helping us to plant out the repulsive coast guard so thoroughly. Then he said, Don't mention it. Did you tell your little gals what she was up to? No, said Oswald, not till afterwards. Then you can hold your tongues. Well, since you've acted so handsome about that there pig, what's to be named for Stokes, I don't mind if I tells you something. Only mum's the word. We said we were quite sure it was. Well, then, said he, leaning over the pigsty wall, and rubbing the spotted pig's back with his stick, it's an ill wind that blows good to nobody. You see, that night there was a little bird went and whispered to him up at Long Beach about our little bit of a keg. So when we landed they was there. Of course, said Oswald. Well, if they was there they couldn't be somewheres else, could they? We owned that they could not. I shouldn't wonder, he went on, but what a bit of a cargo was run that night further up the beach, something as wasn't sea-water. I don't say it was so, mind, and mind you don't go for to say it. Then we understood that there is a little smuggling done still, and that we had helped in it, though quite without knowing. We were jolly glad. Afterwards, when we had that talk with father, when he told us that the laws are made by the English people, and it is dishonorable for an Englishman not to stick to them, we saw that smuggling must be wrong. But we have never been able to feel really sorry. I do not know why this is. End of story 10